And do you remember what happened just before you picked up the phone that first time to say, I need help? Oh, I, I felt deep shame. And I cried, which I rarely do, because my parents were retired. I didn't want to bother them, but also I'm a coach. I help people for a living. I should not be the one saying, help me. People come to me and say, help me, and I'm, I do brilliant work helping them. But quite often, helping yourself is much more difficult. And I think because after the divorce, I was in survival mode, I wasn't taking care of me. And that's why I always say to people in business, it's so important to take care of yourself first. When people want to work with me, we spend time working on vision boards. We spend time working on mental health first. Even sales training, LinkedIn training, makes no difference. We have to work on you first. Because if we don't, it doesn't matter what I teach you. You will not learn anything because your mind is elsewhere. You know, last year I had the best year of my life financially. And I was proud of myself for doing that. What mattered most to me were the number of people who said, I've been through a really hard time. I've been through a painful divorce and I read an article of yours and it really helped me. It gave me hope. When people reach out to me and say, you know what, I work in an all-male office. We can't talk about these things. We just can't share our vulnerability. Thank you for being my voice. I mean, that's a powerful thing for someone to say to you. Um, you know, about two-thirds of my clients are women. Now, for a man, especially a male coach, to have two-thirds of your clients women, that's very rare. And it's so many women over 40 approach me to say, I love your story. I love your vulnerability. You seem like the real deal. Can we have a chat? It's a shame men don't see that. A lot of men just want quick fixes. A lot of men will see the scumbag gurus. The kind of people who say, you can eat what you want and I'll help you lose weight kind of thing, you know? <laughs> or uh, come to my one day event, I'll teach you how to be a millionaire. Oh, those are the worst. And again, I've, I've sadly invested in those in the past. So I know how bad they are. And it's full of people who are clueless thinking, wow, I pay three grand. I've gone to this event free, but then they upsell you to three grand a weekend. Well, we'll make you become a millionaire. And it's interesting, Gary, I've met many people who've attended these events over the year. Many, many people. Not a single one has become a millionaire. Not one has become a millionaire. Look how long it takes. You know, <laughs> Stop thinking about overnight successes and thinking, I can do that. No, you can't. Just stop it. If something's too good to be true, it normally is. Commitment, consistency, time, patience. So important. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another 
Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. I'm delighted to bring you a very special guest who I met recently and I knew I had to bring on to record. Niraj Kapoor is an expert sales coach, trainer, speaker, and author of the Amazon bestseller, Everybody Works in Sales. He's delivered LinkedIn and sales training to over 450 small businesses, startups, and solopreneurs. LinkedIn awarded him top voice status in 2022, and he has almost 30,000 followers on the platform. Now, if you think of your stereotypical salesperson, you might wonder what the fit is with the unlock moment. But today we're not really talking about sales. We're talking about honesty, authenticity, and vulnerability in your personal journey. Well, maybe we are talking about sales. I'll let Niraj help us out on that question. His TED Talk has just been published on YouTube. It's called How Vulnerability Changed My Life. Niraj Kapoor, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Fantastic intro, by the way. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much, Gary. I think it was our, it was our mutual friend. I think it was Simon Alexander Ong, possibly. Yeah, because Simon and I are good friends. A lot of respect for him. Um, I saw him on your show, and that's how we connected. And then you asked me to come on your show. So it just shows you business really and truly is relationships. I love it. I love it already. So where do we need to start in your journey to understand how you came to your unlock moment and where you are today? Where do we start? I spent almost 23 years working in London for other people. And in all fairness, the first 21 years were quite wonderful. Yes, I had challenges like everybody else, but I had a lot of success. And the last two years, I just wasn't happy because I wanted to work from home one day a week. And all my bosses said, don't be stupid. Nobody works from home. It's the dumbest idea in the world. Only lazy people work from home. I'm like, really? I don't think that. I refuse to believe that. The problem was I had no proof. <laughs> because they were the bosses, they felt they were more successful than me. And I felt this whole, you know, working in the evenings and working the weekends, it's a bit over the top sometimes. I do believe to be successful in life, of course, you should work harder. But I'm strongly against bosses contacting you nine o'clock at night on your personal phone. And this is becoming a real habit. And I was becoming very stressed. The three to four hours a day traveling, commuting was exhausting. After 20 years, it takes its toll. You know, when I started, just for people who are listening, I had hair. I don't have hair anymore. It's all gone. Um, I had a six pack. You know, I don't have that anymore either. You know, so all the things that I wanted that I thought were necessary, working from home just one or two days a week, not every day, having a better work-life balance, having a better culture in the office, spending more time coaching my staff. Nobody was allowing me to do this. And I felt this was the way forward. The problem was it was just me fighting this battle. And every boss I spoke to kept saying I was wrong. And after two years, I thought, you know what? Enough's enough. I'm going to set up my own business, which I did. Now, being very good at your job and setting up your own business, Gary, are two completely different things. I cannot tell you in words how different they are. It is a shock to the system. And day one, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. What have I done? I made a mistake. And you spend the first six months just regretting every moment. You really do. <laughs> yeah, that resonates. <laughs> and I say to people all the time, um, I mean, in, in, in the coaching world, in the executive coaching world, people say, you know, it'll take you three years until your business is sustainable and successful and profitable with a following wind. And lots of people, I was probably in this group as well, I was like, ah, it won't take three years. For me, you know, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be easier. And it just isn't. It, there's so many headwinds that you have to face into when, when, when you're starting up your own thing. And being on your own is very different as well, isn't it, from, from being surrounded by a team of people. 
not having other people you can bounce ideas off, not having water cooler moments. Because the idea of working from home sounds very appealing. I don't have to commute. I can work on my tracks at bottoms. That sounds lovely. You know, on a cold, freezing day, I don't have to leave the house. It's just being an extrovert. That didn't work well with my personality. And certainly not having a typical structure. You know, because running a business, is a lot of sales skills come in very valuable. But really, people vastly underestimate the importance of mindset when it comes to business and the importance of surrounding yourself with really good people and also putting your ego to the side. Because when you have a great career in London and you, you make a great living and you're earning six figures a year, you think you're very smart. And then you set up your own business and realize you're not really that smart. You know? And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm not. I, all these years I thought I was smart. I'm not really that smart. That's a big shock to your system. It's a big kick to your ego. And you really have to become humble and start again, which is so difficult to do, especially as a man in your mid-40s, because your ego and your attitude towards life are very different. It's much easier starting a business in your late 20s or 30s, without a doubt. But in your mid-40s onwards, it's much more challenging. And you've got responsibilities and, and, and all sorts of additional complicating factors that maybe in your mid-20s are not so significant for you. Yeah, most people in their 20s don't have to worry about mortgages or families or kids. When you get to your mid-40s, that becomes way more important to you. Um, you, you start being, becoming, I certainly became more aware of my health from my mid-40s onwards. Before that, it didn't really bother me. I became, you become more aware. A lot of the friends you have start to lose their parents. So you become very aware of that. You got one or two friends you went to school with who have sudden heart attacks. I'm like, whoa, you know, certain things happen. You also have friends you went to school with who become grandparents. I'm like, no, a lot of things happen. And so you do question things a lot more. But I certainly find taking risks. In my 20s and 30s, I took risks all the time. But mid-40s, I was much more risk adverse because it's like, hang on a second. <laughs> you know. I don't want to be spending this money. This, I need savings. I need a cash eyes. I need a pen. You know, you think too much about money and money and investing in the business. Saving money and investing in business are different things. You need to be investing in the business at the beginning. So you thought that moving from the corporate world and the massive commute into working from home and doing the things you choose to do, you thought that might be a reduction in your stress levels? Oh, 100%. And, and what happened? Oh, there was increased my stress levels, caused tremendous tension with me and my wife at the time. Uh, luckily, and I'm very grateful to her for this, she supported me uh, for the first year. She was outstanding, but it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be here today. Um, my second year in business, our daughter went to university and our marriage collapsed. So the second year in business, I struggled again, mindset, you see, mindset plays a big part because after 21 years of marriage, I just wasn't coping anymore. And when I asked for a divorce, she was so angry and pissed off at me because she's a very successful woman, quite brilliant, has money, and she's beautiful. And people, everybody thought I was stupid divorcing her. Everybody said, what's the matter with you? You're so lucky. Um, I didn't look at it that way. I looked at it in the fact that we don't talk to each other. We don't speak to each other. There's no more conversation left. We've tried date nights. It's not working. We tried to haul in India for her brother's wedding, thinking we'll get away from England, go to India, beautiful mountains, beautiful scenery fantastic and we fought day and night we fought during the wedding which wasn't very nice so it was kind of over so my second year of business was really me battling for divorce and battling for survival and my mental health became so bad 
that when we finally did get divorced, I said, you know what, just take the damn house. I found success once, I will find success again. It just became so toxic. So mentally, it was the best thing for me, without a doubt. Financially, it was a complete disaster. Hmm. So you found yourself at that point that you let go of a lot of things, a lot of things that had been your stability over 20 years. Yes, the people I thought were my friends weren't. They were my ex-wife's friends. Uh, or they were married couples had never been divorced, therefore didn't understand what I was going through and chose not to even say anything, which really, you know, when you spend Christmases with people and you go on holidays together and you celebrate their children's birthday parties and they spend time at your house and all of a sudden you find yourself alone in the world, it was a terrifying place to be. Certainly after the divorce, I thought life can't get any worse. Well, actually, loneliness will kill you. It will. I've read a lot of um, research and I've listened to a lot of podcasts recently where people have said, you know, smoking 20 cigarettes a day is actually better for you than being alone. You know, <laughs> it's, it's the worst research you can read, but I'm like, it, it's true. Loneliness will absolutely destroy you. And for two months, I started slowly getting on my feet. Then lockdown happened in 2020. And that pretty much the few clients I had said, I'm sorry, we have no money. And now you're trying to deal with loneliness, the pain of divorce, not having friends, having zero income, and then borrowing an absolute fortune and a bounce back loan from the bank just to survive. And the things were just going from bad to worse. And I don't, I quit smoking when my daughter was born. I don't drink anymore. Uh, I don't do drugs. I'm not an abusive person. So I took all my pain out on food. And went from three meals a day to four to five to six. When I say meals, I'm talking fish and chips at one o'clock. I'm talking Chinese at two o'clock, kebabs at five o'clock. I mean, you're just taking food to numb the pain, to try to get some kind of feeling in your life. All you're doing is searching for a feeling. I, I get it why drug dealers want highs. You're just searching for something that will give you some hope or a bit of happiness in life. And I went through that for food. And very quickly, I ballooned from being slightly overweight to being overweight to being obese. When I got diagnosed obese, I told my parents and they freaked out. And I was in tremendous pain at the time. And I said, look, I'm in real trouble. Can you please help me? Because I'm really scared right now. I've been alone. I have so much debt. I'm just not coping with life. And I must say, you do require a bit of luck sometimes in life. And I was incredibly fortunate, Gary, that they said, you know what? Put everything in storage. Come home for three months. And that was your unlock moment in there. That was a, a massive turning point in my life. I think in life, sometimes you have to make decisions, which often you have to go. People always say success lies on the other side of your comfort zone. And in theory, that makes sense. <laughs> I, I get that. I get it when people say that. But when you're going through it at the time, there's no part of you that says to yourself, you know what? I'm going through this horrible pain right now. It's going to be okay because, of course, I'm going to get better. And you don't think like that. You only think about the clarity later on. And so I went. I put everything I had in storage. I went home with my car, my second-hand car, um, two suitcases, and my books. That was it. That's all I had. And everything went into storage. And I went and lived with my parents so I could heal, uh, mainly take care of my mental health and take care of my physical health and rebuild my life again. And that took me way longer than I expected. But you know what? I am so lucky I could do that because it's only years later when I've met people 
in a similar position to me. And after three years, four years, five years, they're still on very intense prescription drugs. They still have drinking problems. They still are really messed up inside. I got healed. Others didn't. So I'm not very aware of that. And do you remember what happened just before you picked up the phone that first time to say, I need help? Oh, I, I felt deep shame. And I cried, which I rarely do, because my parents were retired. I didn't want to bother them. But also, I'm a coach. I help people for a living. I should not be the one saying, help me. People come to me and say, help me, and I'm, I do brilliant work helping them. But quite often, helping yourself is much more difficult. And I think because after the divorce, I was in survival mode, I wasn't taking care of me. And that's why I always say to people in business, it's so important to take care of yourself first. When people want to work with me, we spend time working on vision boards. We spend time working on mental health first. Even sales training, LinkedIn training makes no difference. We have to work on you first. Because if we don't, it doesn't matter what I teach you. You will not learn anything because your mind is elsewhere. And this is why I wanted you to come on the, the podcast and talk about this, because I think that you, you described this so brilliantly, so vividly, that, that humility, the vulnerability, the, the looking inward before you can look outward. And there's so many people who, you know, it's what you're describing. They, they have this big ambition of these things that they want to do, and they don't know themselves. You know, my book, The Idea Mindset, the I in idea is identity. And it's all about who you are, what's important to you, what you want in life, what your vulnerabilities are. It's so important to, to be at your best, to be able to, to, to get to that place. And sometimes the time when you really learn is in the darkest moments, in the times when you're on, on your own. And I think you bring that to life really well. So that was the beginning of starting to heal and rebuild. So how did that journey start to progress? I always say that people, it's so important in life to surround yourself with people smarter than you. Or if not, try to find those who are different to you, but still have your best interest at heart. That's very important. And my parents are very different to me. They're first generation immigrants. They had one job and they had the same job for life. <laughs> okay. My mother was a physiotherapist. My father worked for NHS as a GP. So they had one job for life, one salary for life, one guaranteed income for life. So they, have, they could not understand why I was a business owner. They kept begging me to go back to university and get a degree. And so look, we'll help you pay for the degree, but you have to get a job. And we thought of becoming a doctor. I'm like, oh, for God's sake, mom, stop it, please. Stop the whole Indian thing, becoming a doctor. If you're, stop it, please. You know, because that is the, all they know is one job for life and saving and family. And the family part, I completely respect and understand. Um, but what dad did was he got me into a couple of things. He got me a gym membership, just a local console gym, very simple and straightforward, and demanded I go three times a week. He said, I don't care what you do, you're going three times a week. <laughs> and that was it. And I started doing, uh, because of my weight, I was doing Pilates, I was taking yoga classes, I was doing, I, I really, I went about five times, I really took good care of myself. I wasn't pushing myself to the limits, but I was going regularly. And he got me books on philosophy uh, by Plato, uh, Socrates, uh, J.P. Vespani, Buddha. Uh, books really that focus very heavily on mindset and emotional intelligence. Philosophy is amazing. I learned so much about myself. And also I went to walks in nature every day because living in Ireland, within about 10 to 15 minutes of my house, there's nature everywhere. And... Wintertime, it was freezing. Summertime, it's beautiful. But that was wonderful. My mother got me just 
fresh Indian home-cooked food every night. Not, not that chicken tikka nonsense you get in restaurants. I'm talking proper Indian food made with real love that takes hours to cook. And simple stuff like getting a good night hug from her in the morning when I wake up, giving me a hug again, having breakfast together, just being part of a family again. That made a huge difference to me. It really did. And bear in mind, at this stage, I hadn't seen my daughter. You know, she was in England at university. So I hadn't seen her for some time. So I was missing her dreadfully as well. So just having my parents around made a big difference. And I went to therapy as well. So I think all these things combined meant I was slowly getting better. And as I slowly got better, I started writing better content. And I started knowing myself better. And instead of talking about sales or LinkedIn, I was talking about my personal story on LinkedIn. And all of a sudden, I went from being a complete nobody to having 1,000 followers, 2,000, 5,000, 8,000, 10,000. Everybody wanted to follow my journey of how I overcame loneliness, of how I rebuilt my life. So many people my age thinking, oh my God, I'm so in awe of you. Thank you for being honest. Because on social media, people brag and show off so much. And here I was not bragging, not showing off, talking about all the trauma I was enduring, all the tough times I was enduring. But the end of each message was, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep learning. I'm going to see the positivity in every negativity. And it was just a different style of writing people were used to at the time. And I'm so grateful for that. And as a result of building up such a big following, LinkedIn, people started following me. They didn't connect with me. They just followed me. So I didn't know who they were. I had zero relationship with LinkedIn. But because they were following my journey and they saw all the charity work I was doing as well, because I do believe that giving to others makes your life better. My father pushed me very hard on the charity work side. He just says, look, you help other people, your life will become better. It's a great, great attitude in life. And I was doing that, writing about my personal story, talking about sales from an integrity point of view. A lot of sales trainers show off, brag. I wasn't doing that. I was giving value and helping. People at LinkedIn started noticing and following me going, this guy's great. And I had no idea how many people were following me at LinkedIn, <laughs> but they were. And um, November 2021, they, they approached me saying, look, we love your content. Your journey is awesome. It, it takes courage. You really stand out. Every year, we give 10 people in the world a LinkedIn top voice in sales award. Two are based in the UK. I would like you to be one of the people. And I'm like, whoa. And that was amazing. And that opened so many doors for me because when your job title is sales coach, people really don't want to speak to you. <laughs> the last thing, that, sales coach, oh, yes, please. Nobody thinks like that. They're like, oh, God, is this guy going to sell to me? Is this, you know? So no, and all of a sudden, people started speaking to me. But more importantly, Americans who've been ignoring me for quite a few years started to take me more seriously. It's very interesting. And the thing that I'm thinking about when, when you're telling that story is that there are two types of followers there's probably more but there's two types of followers there's one type of follower who wants the quick fix so they go you've been through the really painful long journey can you just tell me the three things i need to do tomorrow and i will become a millionaire you know i i there's a load of self-help books and 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 i my sweeping generalization is if you eat the breakfast i eat you too will become a millionaire those books but then also and I think more and more you're seeing this on social media channels. You're seeing people have conversations where they're saying, I know it's not easy and I know there's no quick fix and I want to connect and go with you on this journey and maybe I'm going with you on the journey as well. And for me, that is much more a fulfilling conversation. You know, my inbox on, on LinkedIn is filled now with people going, just talk to me and pay me some money and I will get you $100,000 a month. Of, and I'm just like... 
You won't. I, I, I know you won't, but you paint this picture of it's so easy. And I think what really resonates in your story is you are so authentic about the fact that it's genuinely really hard. Um, and there's no, there's no quick fix. There's no shortcut. Um, and nobody following you should expect that it should be any easier for them just because they've heard your story. It's simply that maybe it opens up new thinking for them and things they need to do. For you, when you hear the stories of people that are, that are following you and when they say that something you've said has connected with them, how does that feel for you? What does that do for you? It is one of the greatest feelings you will ever have. You know, last year I had the best year of my life financially. And I was proud of myself for doing that. What mattered most to me were the number of people who said, I've been through a really hard time. I've been through a painful divorce and I read an article of yours and it really helped me. It gave me hope. When people reach out to me and say, you know what? I work in an all-male office. We can't talk about these things. We just can't share our vulnerability. Thank you for being my voice. I mean, that's a powerful thing for someone to say to you. Um, you know, about two-thirds of my clients are women. Now, for a man, especially a male coach, to have two-thirds of your clients women, that's very rare. And as so many women over 40 approach me to say, I love your story. I love your vulnerability. You seem like the real deal. Can we have a chat? It's a shame men don't see that. A lot of men just want quick fixes. A lot of men will see the scumbag gurus, the kind of people who say, you can eat what you want and I'll help you lose weight kind of thing, you know, <laughs> or uh, come to my one-day event, I'll teach you how to be a millionaire. Oh, those are the worst. And again, I've, I've sadly invested in those in the past, so I know how bad they are. And it's full of people who are clueless thinking, wow, I pay three grand. I've gone to this event free, but then they upsell you to three grand a weekend. Well, we'll, we'll make you become a millionaire. And it's interesting, Gary, I've met many people who've attended these events over the year. Many, many people. Not a single one has become a millionaire. Not one has become a millionaire. One or two have got close to 100 grand, but they were doing okay anyway in the first place. You know, I've still not met a single person who's become rich from attending a get-rich-quick scheme or attending a millionaire-in-a-weekend scheme or attending an affluence event. I really haven't because quick fixes don't work. Unfortunately, most people invest in quick fixes because most people invest in what's easy rather than what's right for them. And I worry about some of those kinds of things preying on the vulnerable a bit. The people who are really going to get drawn in are the people that, that feel that, one, it's possible, and two, there's, they have a desperate need for it. And those are the worst people that, that you should be taking money from, I think. You know, so so I, I'm very uncomfortable about elements of the, you know, I'm not sure I consider it part of the coaching industry, but I think of it as part of the sort of self-help industry. I'm less concerned about books, which, you know, there's many, many books out there and each one of them is not particularly expensive, but the kind of events that are thousands of pounds, thousands of dollars a time, it's, it's, it's a very different kind of thing. Um, when you think about the connection of your journey with sales, you know, and you're also obviously a deep expert in the selling bits of sales. So, you know, you've worked in, you know, big corporate environments and now as, a, as, as, you know, running your own sales training business. Have you learned something new about how to sell since leaving the corporate world through going this, through this personal journey for yourself? Oh, absolutely. In the corporate world, I relied very heavily on the companies I worked for. But when you set up your own business, your company name means nothing. Your logo has zero meaning. No matter how good you think it is, no matter how much experience you have, 
people do not care. <laughs> All they care about is how do you help? And that was a big learning lesson. And it took me a while. And it really wasn't until 2021 I started to get this. And in 2022, I just changed my attitude from selling to serving, to helping people as much as possible, to asking questions, to being a person of value, um, buying tables at charity events and giving them all the way free of charge to charities. And just being a, just, I want people to see me as a really good human being who wants to make a positive difference. That's who I am outside work. And inside work, I'm a really decent human being who wants to make a difference. You know, the only difference is at work, I'm making a difference in sales, whereas outside work, I'm doing it for charity. And that's who I am. The near ad you meet, you know, tomorrow I'm off to see Bruce Springsteen live. If you bumped into me at that gig, I'd be the exact same person I am right now in the podcast, which is the exact same person you'll see if you read my books, which is the exact same person that you see if I write content on LinkedIn, or you met me for a beer, or you met me for a coffee. You know, that's what I'm saying. It's the same individual. And to me, that is so valuable. But yes, I would say selling is serving. And that's helped me massively. I, I do believe we should sell. You know, on my LinkedIn post once a week, I still have a call to action. If you want to work with me, if you want to make a difference in your sales on LinkedIn, DM me or send me an email. I would never, and I never say to somebody ever, I can help you get 15 leads a week on LinkedIn. Because I have no idea what your business model is. I have no idea how you work. I have no I cannot help you achieve anything until I've spent at least 10 to 15 minutes asking you questions, listening very carefully, and then trying to wonder, are you my customer? Because every now and again, I'll speak to somebody who's a great fit with a budget, but they're just not right for me. <laughs> and I have to recommend them to somebody else. Or they want to have somebody who just specializes in their territory. I'm like, well, I can't do that. But I recommend them to somebody else. And that's a really important thing to do. You know, and it gives you a tremendous sense of self-worth because, and confidence, of course, because I'm always doing the right thing. I'm always living on purpose, which means I rarely get depressed like I used to. And things rarely get me down. Because I'm always on purpose. A senior client who maybe has a sales team comes and talks to you. Now, you've got this journey you've been through. You've got your clarity, your authenticity about who you are. And when it comes to it, how you personally sell. Do they look at that and they go, I want you to reproduce yourself in my team? Do they come to you and say, that works really well for you, but I think for my team, it's going to come back to more classic, you know, what we think of as salespeople, sales approaches. Can you train them in that? How does it work when you think, how do I apply what I've learned to other people who are not me, who've not been on my journey, who don't necessarily have my purpose and, and drive in the same kind of way? How do you translate that into working with others? It's very easy to do that on a one-to-one -one level because about two-thirds of my work is one-to-one -one coaching. And that's where you really develop great relationships with people. And it's where you really make a difference in people. Now, a lot of the, the gurus, self-help, of course, and sales trainers say you should never do one-to-one -one coaching because you can't scale your business. You make all your money only doing group training. And a lot of them have a policy. They will never do one-to-one -one coaching. But those are for financial reasons. And I mentioned I live a life of purpose. I get my purpose doing one-to-one -one coaching. That is where I get my happiness. It's where I get my joy. So I don't take on much group work. I really have to like the person or like the company to do that. That's the first important thing. Also, when it comes to sales training, a lot of companies are very disorganized and they don't ask me to replicate myself. They do ask me if I can teach people storytelling because storytelling is a very important part of sales. 
and most salespeople don't incorporate stories into demos. They repeat boring facts and figures, and they repeat boring stats, and they talk about features which nobody cares about, but they don't tell stories. There's no emotion on them, there's very little vulnerability, and they ask horrendous questions. Bear in mind, every single week when I speak to people, I observe demos, or I listen to phone calls. So all I do is hear this or see this every single day. I know how bad it is. But the big problem companies have is they invest in sales training, but they don't invest in aftercare. It's like they buy a car, but they never get it serviced. So they'll invest in me, and I'm like, okay, we got to do the follow-up. Oh, we can't afford it. I said, but I need to follow up with your team. Well, you can do that free of charge, but I'm not going to pay you for it. We've just paid you 3000 for the day. And a lot of people seem to think £3,000 for a day or $4,000 for a day is a lot of money. But when you've spent many hours talking to somebody, many hours preparing something, a full day delivering, and bear in mind, 30 years experience doing what I do, £3,000 is actually very little, okay? <laughs> That's the first thing you have to understand. And second of all, it's not what I teach you. It's me keeping you accountable afterwards. It's me making sure you remember what you've learned. It's making sure they implement what they learn. And majority of companies don't invest in that. That's the problem with sales training. It's not just the fact a lot of the training out there is terrible, which it is. It's the fact that most companies do not invest in aftercare of their salespeople. A lot of the people that listen to this podcast are themselves coaches. Um, often they've come to coaching maybe you know midpoint or relatively later in their career. They are absolutely not salespeople. Sometimes they're absolutely having a sales phobia. Uh, they're on their own. They can't employ, can't afford to employ somebody else to go and sell the services for them. Um, and you know, lots and lots of coaches in their first year, two years, three years in particular, really struggle with how to build relationships uh, that will turn into coaching relationships with new people that are not in their network that haven't come through recommendation. So, how would you talk to to people who don't think of themselves as salespeople at all? They don't like the idea of sales, but they need to build relationships to, to build their coaching practice. I'm glad you mentioned this because I speak to coaches a lot. Either I meet them at conferences or I speak to them online and they ask to speak to me privately. When someone wants to speak to me privately, I know they want to say to me, I'm struggling. And sometimes they can't afford my services. And if you're a coach, I often empathize with that. And I say, look, I'm not going to give you 60 minutes free of charge because people don't appreciate free. But I've been where you've been. So I'll give you 15 minutes. In all fairness, that 15 minutes normally becomes 20 minutes, 25 minutes. But I will always try and help because when I started out, nobody advised me. So if you're an introvert, because a lot of my clients are introverts, you can't just say to somebody, pick up the phone and make phone calls. They will not do it. They will freak out. So you have to say, look, you're not selling. You're helping people. And it's your job to help people. And second of all, you have to follow up. <laughs> most people say, well, someone's interested, they'll come back to me. No, they won't. <laughs> you know, most, most of my clients have said no to me at least once. I didn't win them by coercion. I won them because sometimes people need more time to trust you. Or sometimes a lot of clients that work with me have had a terrible experience with somebody else. So I, I don't win them first time around in the first conversation. That's okay. I often, it'll take me three, four, sometimes five conversations. But in those conversations, I'm not trying to win or close them every single time. Sometimes if, I want a client recently who said no to me once because they had a really bad experience with the previous individual. And all I did was I said, look, once a week, so okay, if I put you into my newsletter, you'll get tons of value. And you do. I put them in my newsletter 
And a month later, I called them and said, how are you getting on? Are you getting value? Good, good. What more do you want from me so I can earn your trust and you can earn my trust? What, what else can I do? And they said, Nairj, you're giving you so much value. Just keep doing that. Like, okay, that's fine. I'll keep doing that. And that was pretty much it. Okay. So these are the things you have to do. You have to go a bit slower. You have to change the language you use. And you have to make it much more supportive to people. And when you want to win a client, you have to say things like, not can we work together or do we have a sale? But how do you feel about this? What do you think would happen if we did work together? How do you see things progressing? What do you want to achieve? I ask a lot of questions and I really slow things down. And that would be my advice to any coach who's struggling with sales. I really, really appreciate the way, the way you set that out. And I think that it is it's something about reframing, isn't it? Because I've seen so many people that, that I work with, as soon as you use the S word, they clam up and they say, I'm not that. I don't like that. I don't want to do that. But of course, you know, for you to build that relationship and build that trust, you know, such an important word that you use, it's nothing to do with the actual sales bit of the conversation. There's something about understanding kind of the, the, the dimensions of how that kind of relationship and understanding would work. For me, I think there's something about, you know, I've had the advantage of sitting slightly on both sides of the table, you know, with people coming to me when I was in corporate roles and, and trying to sell me something. And I say to people sometimes, you know, I probably bought from one in a hundred people who came through the door, just because mainly when you're in a corporate environment or, you know, if you're spending your own money, there's lots and lots of people asking you to, to spend it on them and you couldn't spend it on everybody, even if they were all great. You know, so somebody saying no doesn't mean that they think you're terrible. It just means that they've got pretty limited budget and they've got to make some really sharp kind of choices. But then I said, when I thought about who were the people, the one in a hundred that I did spend money on, there were people that I liked, that I, people that I felt had spent a bit of time to understand what I needed, people that I felt I could have an interesting conversation with and, and we would both learn. It was always a two-way kind of thing. And I think that, that there is absolutely something about reframing how coaches think. One of the things I think comes through is that in a lot of coach training, there's an awful lot about the coaching bit. And there's not a lot about how you set yourself up as a, as a business, how you set yourself up as an entrepreneur. And when you were saying, you know, coming out of a corporate role and starting your own thing, you know, and, you know, you're a pretty commercial guy, you found it a difficult thing to do. Lots of, you know, lots of people who won't have come so much from a commercial part of the corporate environment and are coming into that entrepreneurial space. It's a difficult thing to do to, to, to set yourself up in that way. When you think about yourself as an entrepreneur, did that change your thinking when you started to think, okay, I've got to build a business here? When you're starting out, calling yourself an entrepreneur is actually quite terrifying. It sounds great because people think financially, but I found that overwhelming calling myself. So I just call myself a business owner. And it was only in lockdown when my money ran out, I thought, right, I need to never rely on one source of income ever again. So what I did was I had to adapt from sales training to LinkedIn training because LinkedIn was the only work I could find at the time. So I got a LinkedIn coach. I read LinkedIn books. I went to LinkedIn. I literally spoke at every event for free, three times a day on Zoom, morning, afternoon, evening. Sometimes I speak for 60 seconds. Sometimes I speak for five minutes. But I did this. I was, you know, I'm consistent and I'm really hardworking. 
And people vastly underestimate the importance of consistency and hard work. They do. They want magic solutions, but these things take time. And it wasn't probably my 30 or 35th talk I became really comfortable talking about LinkedIn. That was after I'd been coached and after I'd read about 20 books on it, you know. Um, so you have to bear that in mind. Uh, and second of all, uh, sales training eventually came back. I also have three books and I have an ebook uh, through a publisher called BookBoon called How to Sell When Times Are Tough. So I have book royalties coming in. And then really I focused very heavily last year on public speaking. Public speaking is where the big money is. Uh, well, actually, no, motivational speaking is where the big money is, but there's no way I can compete with athletes or movie stars or retired MBA. I just can't compete with them. Yeah, yeah this year. <laughs> okay. Next year. Be different. So I tend to give keynote speeches on sales, LinkedIn, pretty much. And there's not that many people out there in LinkedIn and sales who can do that. There's not that many opportunities, but very few people can do it. So I found myself last year, you know, almost 40% of my income was speaking at events. That was lovely. This year, it's only been about 25% so far, but that's okay. Last year was big. I really went big last year on speaking. So, for example, in January this year, January was very quiet with coaching. Normally, it's busy. It was very quiet. But I had tons of speaking work. And I had my third book doing great, which meant my first and second book were doing great. In April this year, I've had very little speaking work. But I've had tons of coaching work. And again, my book royalties are still ticking by. So... I always, for me now, I consider myself an entrepreneur, not in the sense that I've founded three businesses, I've sold them all for seven figures a year. I don't talk like that because it's not very realistic. Most people will never achieve that in a million years. They just won't. I'm sorry, they won't. But most people can have two or three sources of income, which individually aren't worth much, but together they're worth a lot. And I believe people can achieve that because I have achieved that, you know? And that will probably equate to low six figures a year. Again, I'm being very straightforward with you here. I do not earn seven figures a year. I don't even earn high six or even mid six figures. I'm close to earning low six figures in 2023. And it's taken me five years to get there. That is something that most people can achieve. Most people will never achieve seven figures for the rest of their life. They just won't do it. So I make my ambitions big, but also realistic too. I think that's really important, both the diversification message and also the time message. You know, when I talk to people and, you know, I'm, I'm like you on the journey of building personal brand, on the journey of building the different dimensions of, of your kind of universe of podcasting and speaking and writing and coaching and the different, different kind of elements facilitating groups. You know, I started that journey in earnest the beginning of 2019. You know, so I'm four and a bit years into that journey. I feel as though I'm starting to get proper momentum now. And I think that if I was going back to myself at 2019, I don't know that I would have started this journey if I had known it was going to be as hard and as challenging as it's been. I'm really grateful. I've, I have enjoyed mainly the, the challenge along the way. And, and I feel like I've learned a huge amount. But if somebody told me, you know, you'll be sitting there in, you know, four and a bit years time, and you'll be at this stage, would I have started? I don't know, actually. Um, just because it feels a long way away. So what I say to a lot of people now is I say, you know, there's, it's never like, you got to get on and start on that journey. Because if you don't start, then you're never going to get to a place where you start to build, you know, when, when you're thinking, last year, you started to make real traction with your speaking career, on the basis of, of what kind of, how many, how long had you been 
building the specific elements of what turning into the speaking. Yeah. Before lockdown, I was running my own events because nobody would hire me as a speaker. So I wanted to do Tony Robbins style events. And I lost a lot of money by hiring multiple camera crews and stuff like that, which is just stupid. I didn't have the knowledge or the ability to do that. But I wanted to try it. I lost a lot of money, a very good lesson to learn. You're not Tony Robbins. Stop trying to copy him. Stop trying to copy Brendan Bouchard. Stop trying to copy Simon. It's just awful. Try to be a better version of yourself. That's one of the best lessons I give to anybody who wants to be a speaker. And second of all, running your own events is one of the best experiences you will have. You will learn so much about what other people have to go through when they're hiring you. That's why it was very good, because I had to hire other speakers. And eventually, I paid other speakers. At the beginning, I didn't. But now, with the events I do every year in Northern Ireland, we pay speakers. We pay their fees. We pay their hotels. We pay their travel. We fly them from England, and we pay them a fee. It's not a huge fee. Because we treat them so well, they love us for it anyway. We take them out for dinner. We get them hampers afterwards. We shut out nonstop on LinkedIn. But it it took me, again, 2019 and in 2022, I'm getting paid very nicely. When I say very nicely, we're talking, you know, two and a half thousand pounds for one hour talk. That, that to me is very respectable. But it took four years. And I must have given about, I've lost count, 200, 250 talks. I mean, you know, people, again, look how long it takes. You know, <laughs> stop thinking about overnight successes and thinking, I can do that. No, you can't. Just stop it. Stop banging. If something's too good to be true, it normally is. Commitment, consistency, time, patience. Yeah. So important. Yeah. Interesting. If someone's listening to this uh, podcast and your story is resonating with them about this connection into vulnerability, authenticity, purpose, where should they start in terms of making a change themselves, do you think? Well, if you follow my content on LinkedIn, it costs you nothing. It will cost you your time. And you click the bell next to my profile, that means you don't miss my content. And again, I get nothing financially from this, nothing at all. But you will learn a lot. And don't just follow me. Follow a variety of different people with different voices who resonate with you. Uh, Because that's important. Because everybody resonates with different people. Uh, that's a good way to start. And I'm a huge fan. If you go to everybodyworksinsales.com, my website, and scroll to the homepage, there's a recommended reading list. Some of those books are personal development. Uh, many of those books are sales. And many of those books are autobiographies. Again, it's very important if you want to sell more in life, you don't just read sales books. That's the worst thing you can do. You have to read books on personal development. You have to read books on business. You have to read books on psychology. You have to read books on marketing. You know, I will say one of the best sales books of all time. It's called How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's not even a sales book, but it's so important. You read Cialdini's book, you know, on influence and persuasion. Outstanding. Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, is one of the most important books you will ever read. It's not a sales book, but it will help you so much in business and branding and marketing. So, Make sure you're not just reading books in your sector. Make sure you're reading books in other sectors as well. Nuraj, you've given us a masterclass and I'm absolutely delighted you come on to, to share this story and, and, and your wisdom. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For expert sales coach Niraj Kapoor, it was the mental health impact of the loss of his marriage and his business in short order that made him reevaluate his priorities and focus to rebuild something stronger. Niraj, thank you so much for sharing your story and for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Gary. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. 
You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on the Unlock Moment.